It's like when someone's like, I fucking like stubbed my toe real bad. And yeah. you're like, yeah, I do want to see it though. Like I want to fucking see it. <laughs> yeah. It's the same idea. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's like John Krasinski's good news show. I ran out of steam in what, two months, but uh, nobody's sick of bad news yet. Everybody loves bad news. <laughs> well, uh, and it just, it, you know, it just keeps coming. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like an endless supply. It's lovely. It really fucking does. Today I saw we got tagged in somebody's like photo from in their Instagram story. And I was like, oh, there's just a bunch of random people in our elevator at work right now. Glad Mm -hmm. I'm not going to work. Ugh. What? All this stuff. For what? I don't want to say but it's just I don't know you think you're being safe and smart and then you see shit like that yeah I don't even know y'all and you're getting up in my business but I'm getting to the point where I can't even like get takeout without freaking out yeah I trust I trust the restaurants, most of them, but I don't trust the people going. So now I'm only ordering takeout from places that haven't opened their dining rooms. Uh, yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. I'm so excited. I'm, I get to, we're, Trish and I are just driving in her car tomorrow to New Mexico. And we're just going to chill in Taos for a whole week where they have almost no COVID and it's going to be the best. Um, like we're still gonna like not go anywhere or do anything you know right just being somewhere where i'm not afraid that every time i turn the corner someone's gonna cough on me and infect everybody i know yep yeah i do i i will say like i mean obviously texas is back (laughs) back to getting shut down which fucking needed to if we would have just gone into hardcore lockdown at the very beginning, everything would probably be a lot better now and mm-hmm. fine. But I do, I don't want to say I appreciate that Abbott was like, okay, let's pull it back some. But I do think that somebody like Trump wouldn't have done that. Nope. So at least there's a little bit of like, oh, wait, there's a lot of people dying and maybe maybe we should sort of stop. Well, yeah. Look what's happening in Florida. Are you yeah. wa- I'm watching what's happening in Florida real hard because this whole thing, I don't know if I brought this up on the podcast before. My parents planned a vacation to Florida back in October 2019. Mm-hmm. You know, back when there was no reason not to do that. Um, and it was like a family reunion thing. It's a really big deal to them. It really matters a lot to them. I'm like, okay, I'll go. I'll spend a week of my vacation and just sit in Florida. Um, but now I'm like emailing, I'm like, uh, maybe I know, uh-uh. and they're yeah. still determined to go because dear leader says everything's fine. Right. Mm. <laughs> oh, gross. gross. Yeah, I know. 
So I'm, I'm kind of low-key arguing with them, and I keep ending each one with, like, we'll see how it looks like next week. And, of course, every week gets worse and worse. Worse. So I think I'm going to end up winning this argument by virtue of the fact that Florida's going to have to shut down. But I'm watching it carefully. And, uh, man, that governor is determined not to do anything about this. Like, the only thing they've done, you know how Texas, they shut down the bars, right? Right. In, in Florida, he's like, Bars aren't allowed to sell alcohol. What? Right. In order to try to keep people from going to them, but the bars have to stay open because, again, the only reason Florida and Texas were in a hurry to reopen was so that people wouldn't collect unemployment. That's it. Right. That's the only reason, that's what Abbott said. He's like, a lot of people are going to die of this, but that was like the whole thing. It's like, we can't just keep giving out unemployment like this. So, Florida's like sticking to it. They're like, we're not helping anybody. We're just going to like try to strongly encourage people not to get sick and die if they can help it. <laughs> I just, I just looked up the Florida graph and it is uh, abysmal. Oh man. Abysmal. I love how the people, I have some friends in Florida who are like, we did it. We flattened the curve, right? They're supposed no. to do that. It's, it's flat up. It's vertical. <laughs> we did it. I mean, it was very flattened until, like, the last three days, it looks like. Yeah, well, they, there was some controversy. They fired one of the state department officials who whistled, blew the whistle on the fact that they were not reporting all the cases. They were, like, oh. cherry-picking what kind of positive tests to report. Mm -hmm. And she went to the press with that, and then they fired her, and she started her own dashboard. But lo and behold, after all of that came out, they started, you know, looking at their reporting standards and guess how many cases came out of the woodwork. Um, and then they tried that whole, like, oh, well, you know, if you test a lot of people, you get a lot of positives. <laughs> thing that Trump is trying. But the percentage of positive tests has gone from 4 to 15 in the last week. Yeah. So, yeah, it's insane. I yeah, love their reasoning. <laughs> oh, God. They're hitting, like, well over what we're hitting. Yeah, they're worse than we are, which is saying yeah. a lot because Houston's about crippled by this. Houston's, like, the New York scenario ha happened. <sighs> anyway, hopefully all of this will be outdated by the time we post it in a week, and uh, <laughs> everything we just mentioned will be either completely solved, yeah. or those cities will have melted away into the Latinist goo, and uh, people will be like, oh yeah, I remember Houston. Oh no, my friends. <laughs> uh, I'm taking a Xanax now. <laughs> okay. Thanks, guys. Well, yeah. I think we're all going out into the woods, it sounds like. That's in the middle of nowhere. We're so that, going, Lisa fun. and I are going to the woods of Arkansas. There you go. We're all weird survivalists now. Mm -hmm. I, I'll go <laughs> ahead and start that death pool on the Arkansas yeah. trip. <laughs> Someone's getting... okay, somehow. Cases-wise, yes. I think we're just more afraid of the... People the that live in the woods who will probably come and murder us. Well, oh, it is kind of funny that we all became weird survivalists, except for the weird survivalists who um, have become like, I have to go to Walmart <laughs> without a mask on people. 
God. They were afraid of everything, and now there's something to actually be afraid of, and they're like, I don't believe it's real. I swear, man, some people are just addicted to believing that nothing is real. Mm. Well, and those are all the same people who went out and hoarded masks and shit Mm -hmm. in the first go-round, and now it's white women screaming in the middle of Walmart because they don't want to wear a mask. That's what I don't get also is like all these people just screaming in public at groups of people who are like, you should probably calm down. And they're like, I'm fucking right. And it's like, no, if you're the, like, no, 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 no. Not how, who's calling? Someone's calling me. There's a, there's a subreddit for, for that. There's a subreddit that's public. Oh, freak public freakout. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yep. Nice. Yep. I got into that yeah. yesterday. It's a good one. Wonderful. At least well, there's that. Yeah. At least there's Reddit to capture all of mm-hmm. this complete insanity. Oh, yeah. Um, the, encyc- the encyclopedia of our times. Oh, yeah. If you need to know anything, and, look it up on Reddit. Yeah, and bless, you know, <laughs> keep going. It's true. I'm just upset with how many of the crazy people are on there. Well, there are like lots of QAnon bullshit going on. You got to filter your conspiracies a little too much for my taste. <laughs> Start your own with only the best conspiracies. Lisa. <laughs> yes. Top 10 conspiracies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, welcome to Weird Brunch. Woo! Uh, I'm Whitney Lamond. Yeah. I'm Karina Magyar. I'm Lisa Friedrich. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by. It's been a while. (laughs) That's true. No, sing the whole song now. It's like looking out the window too. It was very <laughs> poetic moment. Just start crying. Yeah. Uh, um, well, I can kind of jump into mine from what we were talking about with like preppers and stuff. Nice. Let's hear um, it. Yeah. So this is uh, currently kind of happening. Um, so note that there's not an ending to this just yet. Um, hopefully I'll remember to follow up on one of our future recordings. Oh, shit. Sorry. Not to interrupt, what? but there was a... I haven't started. I know. Sorry. No, there was um, a follow-up that I just remembered the case or the story about the kind of creepy cult dude and that woman he married and they like abandoned, they think that they abandoned their kids out in like New Mexico. Anyways, they fucking found the dead bodies of the children and they're definitely dead. And now both of them have been arrested. I think it's Burrell might be their last name. I can't remember. I should have been more prepared. Classic. It's not, it's not Daybell, is it? It is, right? Yep, I'll see myself out. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, because they had all the updates. And I Chad was Daybell. Like, yeah, I was like, this sounds like one of Whitney's, but there's all these updates. God well, damn it. Shit. <laughs> yep, that is 
definitely one that I did not that long ago. <laughs> well, we have a backup one. one. Go huh? just go read Reddit to us. Oh, you know, okay. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, doubled down on my preparation here, um, which is how I'll transition from preppers to my preparation. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. Why are you sorry that I didn't remember something? I, I don't know. I do want to hear what your update is, though. Well, the main update that I guess you... Uh, did not mention just now is that they talked to her best friend, Lori, um, Lori's best friend. And she like kind of shared a lot of shit here where um, she was saying that, uh, so they found, um, okay. So they found some footage of uh, Lori Vallow and her brother that killed her previous husband mm -hmm. um they found footage of them going into a storage unit and uh putting some belongings of the children's in there in february like clothing oh. photos bicycles and blankets and then they found uh tylee the 17 year old girl they found her cell phone and it had been used after her disappearance with a Venmo payment to a family member. And October 25th, there was a text sent from her phone to a concerned friend. So they were like trying to keep it going. Um, and then, yeah, her best friend, uh, Melanie Gibb, has been cooperating with authorities. And she said that, you know, the couple believe that they're spiritual leaders, uh, Church of the Firstborn. And they also stated that their mission was to rid the world of zombies. And zombies in this instant refers to an individual whose mortal spirit has left their body uh, and their body is now the host of a dark spirit. And she had said that her, um, she called Tylee a zombie in the spring of 2019 when Tylee did not want to babysit her brother. And then, um, oh, also she learned the concept of zombies from Chad while she was reading all of his self-published bullshit books. Um, and then she told uh, Melanie that JJ was a zombie um, earlier, or later in 2019, or no, earlier in 2020. And then, um, let's see. So they, once you're a zombie, like your spirit is in limbo. So they were likely trying to save them from that. And then Melanie visited Lori a few weeks after the Yellowstone excursion. And Lori told her that Tylee was in college, which she never enrolled in. And the last time she saw JJ, he was leaving um, with his uncle, the brother who's been murdering everybody and he looked to be asleep on his shoulder Ugh. um and so then awful. yeah and then they pinged his cell phone and saw that he went out to the property um to the daybell property the day after they got back from yellowstone and the day after jj left with his uncle oh and she's gonna defend herself 
Yes! Fuck yeah. Mm -hmm. Fuck that woman. God, I hope she defends herself. What an idiot. Nan. Nan. Woo! Thank you for the update. See, they like, come on. Nan, and you know what's stupid is that I almost like posted a follow-up to it on our Instagram and I feel like if I had done that, I would have saved some trouble for you, Lisa, and for me, for the fucking life of me, I can't remember the number of the episode, but it's from season two. Anyways. It was likely in like February um, or March. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so I would like to tell the story of Mary Eliza Mahoney. Um, she was born in Boston in 1845. There's not really a good date in 1845, but like the spring. Um, she was born to freed slaves who had moved from North Carolina to Boston. And she was the oldest of two children. One of her siblings died early on as a child, which probably inspired what she wanted to do. Um, she was educated at Phillips School in Boston, which after 1855 was one of the first integrated schools in the nation. Very early Texas. Um, she knew from when she was a teen that she wanted to become a nurse. So that's why I was relating that to a sibling who died very young. And she began working at the New England Hospital for Women and Children. Uh, This hospital was very unique because it was dedicated to only women and children. It had an all-female staff of physicians. And Mary worked there for 15 years doing a variety of different roles just to help out and be in that uh, arena. She was a janitor, cook, laundry stuff, uh, but also a nurse's aide, which got her some experience there. She, um, the New England Hospital for Women and Children operated one of the first nursing schools in the United States. Very cool. And in 1878, at the age of 33, she was admitted to the hospital's professional graduate school for nursing. Uh, It was a 16-month program. It was very intensive, and honestly, they are still very intensive programs for nursing, and I don't think that nurses get enough respect for the shit they have to go through to become a nurse. I'm just saying. Um, Many students didn't even complete. There were 42 that entered the program in 1878, and only four had completed it in 1879. So we're at less than 10%. Um, But Mahoney was one of the women who finished the program. She was the first African-American in the U.S. to earn a professional nursing license. Uh, Since, you know, discrimination and bullshit in the 19th century, um, she pursued a career as a private nurse uh, to focus on the care needs of individual clients. So instead of having like a hospital full of people, it was more of like a house call situation. Uh, 
-hmm. Her patients were mostly from wealthy white families who lived up and down the East Coast. So she was traveling quite a bit uh, and they were traveling quite a bit. She was known for her efficiency, patience, and caring bedside manner, which I can only imagine how that felt in 1880s. Um, Jeez. Can you, I don't know. That's a lot of, that's a lot of patience. Um, in 1896, she became one of the original members of uh, Nurses Associated Alumni, alumni of the United States and Canada, which later became the American Nurses Association. This was a predominantly white group of people um, and they were not very welcoming to African-American nurses. Um, and so Mahoney was like, mm, fuck that. And she and two friends, um, they created the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses. Uh, this, although, you know, it was called what it was and, and it was founded on the discrimination from um, the American Nurses Association, they did not discriminate against anybody. Everyone was welcome and the main goal was to eliminate racial discrimination in the nursing community. Nice. Um, yeah. This is just a sweet story, by the way. There's nothing like dramatic about it. It did. Did, did, did it work? Um, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. No, no, um, no. Uh -huh. ANA. Well, ANA was pretty backwards for quite some time. Um, they actually like felt as though uh, the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses needed to kind of be around and it did have a significant influence on eliminating the discrimination, uh, but it, it was still around until 1951. So almost, I mean, what is that? 70 something years, mm -hmm. 70 years? Um, no, it's 50 years. Anyway, so yeah, it was founded in 1908 and in 1909, she spoke at the uh, first annual convention and the first annual convention had 26 female nurses in attendance. It was a struggle. Um, but in her speech, she talked about the, you know, the inequalities and everything um, and how, you know, nursing education of the day, like how it can improve. And she, the members gave her a lifetime membership and uh, a position as the organization's chaplain. So even though she was one of the founders, she hadn't really, like made named herself anything um and then let's see there was you know after years and years of doing uh, of working with this organization uh there was an increase in acceptance of black women into uh medical platforms and then they integrated with the american nurses association in 1951 mm. um after decades as a private nurse she became the director of the howard orphanage asylum for black children in kings park long island um, and she served as the director there from 1911 until 1912 i will never feel comfortable with the word asylum associated with the word orphanage 
<laughs> Neither of those are comfortable words, and I don't know why we would put them together. Well, I mean, asylum is supposed to be a good word, like saving you, right? Like you claim asylum when you go into a church so the fucking cops can't get you or whatever. Yeah, it's supposed to mean a safe space. Yeah, and yeah. it's just yeah. gotten destroyed. Batman really fucked that up for everybody. Fucking Arkham. Um, Arkham. Uh, let's see. She finally retired after 40 years in the professions. She was 73. Uh, she did continue to champion women's rights, though. And after the 19th Amendment was ratified in August of 1920, she was among the first women who registered to vote in Boston. Hell yeah, bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, of course, there are, are many awards named after her. Um, and let's see, she was introduced in, uh, let's see, in 1993, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. Um, and her grave is in Everett, Massachusetts, and it has become a memorial site. Let's see. And, oh, yeah, in 1968, um, Helen S. Miller won the Mahoney Award, and she led a fundraiser to uh, erect a monument at her gravesite. So just sharing a story of a real uh, bad bitch in a really tough time. I love a good bad bitch story. Totally. There's a man. I have a story, not in this episode, but in another one coming up. That's gonna like parallel that so closely. Um, Oh, really? Well, no, not totally different people, totally different location. But man, it just like those decades. If you were black from 1835 to 1875, you were on quite a roller coaster of like awful oppression to like tremendous amazing amounts of hope to like oh there's the awful oppression again like in one 40 year period that is just like unfathomable right oh yeah well and like having I, i guess like new england specifically was a little i mean me coming from texas i'm like you're working with uh predominantly wealthy white clients in that time like holy shit. But then, you know, New England was a whole different situation. Um, but still, that has to be fucking hard. Yeah. Hard. Hard. Um, so the episode where we talked about Lori Vallow was season two, episode 16. Oh, no, not Tom Hanks. The very first time we heard about COVID. So. Oh my God, that's right. The yeah. Infamous, oh, no wonder we don't remember right? the stories from the it, only, all we remember. All we remember is Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks has Frida being infected. That literally feels like a year ago. Yeah. It basically was in mental years. Who, um, are you going next? Or you want yeah, to- I'll go next. I think, I think my story is kind of uh, spiritually similar to Lisa's. It'll make a, a difference. Okay, cool because it's uh, another pioneer another another black woman who challenged the world and whatever uh i I can't say the results have 
done much, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, her name is Jackie Shane, and she was pretty much forgotten until 2017. Um, but in the 1960s, she was the premier chart-topping soul singer in Canada. Uh, in, in Toronto specifically, she was like the biggest soul singing attraction in the city. Uh, she has a very interesting story. She was born in Nashville in the 1930s, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, when she was nine years old, she started putting on women's clothes, which uh, bothered people because she was assigned male at birth but it didn't bother her mom. Her mom was like, whatever, I love you and do what you gotta do. And so she just kept on doing it. Uh, and then it, when she was a teenager, she would hang around at the nightclubs in Nashville and uh, sing along to the songs. And they noticed that her voice was incredible and she got invited on stage a couple times and she knocked it out of the park and she became kind of a singing star. Uh, but she knew she couldn't, like, stick around in the Jim Crow South. So she made her way to Toronto, um, where... The way, had, way north. Yeah, way, way north. <laughs> Not just uh, New York had, City, like, all the fucking way up. Yeah. She was following some uh, musical connections. And um, so she was playing drums and being a session player for some... Uh, some Nashville groups. She actually went on tour with Jackie Wilson, um, uh, higher and higher and a couple of other big songs. Mm -hmm. People don't know Jackie Wilson as much as they should, but anyway, so, uh, she met Jimi Hendrix in the sixties and she gigged a little bit in Nashville, but these gigs, um, that took her on tour ran her into some R and B players from Toronto who were like, you should totally come to our city. Like there's nobody here who could like touch your talent and you would just run that city. And then from there, Canada, and then, you know, you'd become famous. And so she moved there uh, and she joined this group called the Motley crew, which is pretty funny. The oh, yeah. Motley crew. The Motley crew. Motley crew. Uh, crew is spelled like C R E W. Uh, so mm. they're not that motley, not as motley as not the 80s you. one. you. Yeah. Um, and uh, she kept on obviously performing as a woman, but didn't really like address her gender. She just didn't talk about it. Uh, it didn't come up. Audiences and press at the time described her as flamboyant, but with male pronouns, or they would say she was a drag queen. Um, but she didn't really pay any attention to it. She just did her thing. And uh, she put out some singles and a live album. She covered um, Money, That's What I Want, which is a pretty famous standard R&B song. Uh, and You Are My Sunshine. And, and then she had one called Any Other Way that like hit the top of the charts. And she was on her way to success and stardom. In 1968, The Ed Sullivan Show invited um, her on, but she turned it down because they asked her to, to appear on television in men's clothes and she said no yeah like fuck off well 1968 i guess right right yeah um also, so wasn't ed sullivan kind of like a shit bag i, I don't know why i'm thinking that hmm. i 
don't know. He probably was. Um, I know he was like more open to having like musicians of color on his show than general shows at the time and that he's sometimes yeah. celebrated for that. But I mean, that doesn't mean he's not a shitbag. Uh, I have no idea. I just assume most males that had any form of real success back then were probably shitheads. And had power in the entertainment industry. Yeah. yeah. Checks but out. All the extent of my knowledge of Ed Sullivan comes from the musical Bye Bye Birdie. So I don't know very much. Um, so yeah, she's anyway, she's killing it in, in, in Toronto. Uh, and then she gets an invitation to join, um, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic in Los Angeles. They're like, you should be part of the band. And she said, well, I don't really want to go to Los Angeles. That's a little too far away from my mom. And my mom is getting sick. And she's at the time trying to get her mom who's getting old, up there in years to come to Toronto so she could take care of her, but her mom's like afraid of like change and doesn't want to leave Nashville and won't come to Canada. Um, and so she moves back to, to Nashville in 1971 when her mom's uh, second husband died and she took care of her mom until she died. Um, and at that point in 1971, she just vanished. She, as far as anybody knew, she was just gone. Uh, she didn't like uh, keep gigging or anything in Nashville. She didn't keep doing music. She just took care of her mom, who was so kind to her when she was a kid. So rumors started circulating. First of all, there was always rumors about her. Uh, one was that she was discovered by Little Richard, even though she like only met Little Richard once. But in Canada, I guess if you were like, a gay black R&B singer, you must have been hatched in the same nest as Little Richard. So they just, everybody just assumed that like Little Richard put her in Canada or something. Right. Um, and never like, even though she said no, like they wouldn't listen to her. Like they've got their own story, right? Um, Ours is better. <laughs> lots of rumors about the mafia, which was common for any nightclub singer in the 60s, but that also had no uh, real connection to her. And then in, when she disappeared, uh, the rumor was that she was murdered. And that rumor, because she didn't contradict it and wasn't around in Canada, at least to show otherwise, stuck. And it was pretty well accepted that she had died or was murdered in sometime in the early 70s. So she hangs out there in Nashville uh, until 2016. Um, so for 40 years, she just disappeared. And even people who are big into transgender history or into LGBT history had forgotten about her. And she was like, there's so much documented evidence, photographs, uh, there's, you know, television recordings, there's everything. She was out there and not being particularly subtle um, as a trans singer, but like completely forgotten. So in 2016, her bandmate finally looked her up, uh, one of the Motley crew. Uh, he wanted to put out a new album, uh, reissue a bunch of live tracks that had been recorded. His name was Frank Motley. And uh, he found her. He tracked her down in Nashville and he said, oh, Jackie, you're still alive. She's like, yeah, yeah I'm still alive. Uh, he's like, do you want to help me produce this album? And she said, yeah, I'll help you produce the album. So they get together and they remaster some tracks and she doesn't record anything new. She's getting really up there, but she like helps produce it. They put it out 
And in 2016, 2017, all of a sudden, all things transgender were like very newsworthy and kind of of the times. So this album, which was genuinely good, it's like, I really encourage you to look it up. It's called uh, Any Other Way, kind of took off and it won a Grammy. So she won a Grammy um, and went to the Grammy Awards and everything. So that was kind of cool. And she did a lot of interviews all of a sudden, including a very good one for Q Radio, uh, which is Canada's version of NPR. And uh, a lot of good quotes. I was going to like share a couple with you of like this 78 year old woman uh, talking about how she did her life. Uh, Here's one. Um, Many of my teachers in school didn't like me because my questions were like, how do you know what you're teaching out of that book is is fact and truth? They didn't want to deal with that. Down here in the South during Jim Crow, you didn't get the education you deserved. So I educated myself. I had to learn about African people who have contributed so much to this country. That wasn't written about. I would ask, you mean we've done nothing for this country? We've done nothing but build this country on our backs and there's not a nickel for it? I'm sure we've done other things. Like I said to people, a little African girl learned to rise to be the true queen of hellish times in the South called Jim Crow. She rose above it. I didn't accept what I knew was wrong. I simply looked at it and I said, I'm going to beat them at their own game. And that's what I've done. I simply said, what they're doing is a lie and they know it. I can come into your home, cook, raise your children, counsel you, but I can't sit beside you in a public restaurant. That makes no sense, my dear. That's a, so that's a taste of like just how she got through the 60s. Um, so fucking rad. Yeah, yeah just a totally cool. rad person. You got to look up some pictures. She was hot as hell too. Um, and let's see, let me find What's her name again? Sorry. Jackie Shane. Jackie Shane. Uh, I've never felt I had to change or do anything that wasn't natural to me. I will never ever be some kind of wishy-washy creature that pretends or let others guide me. I guide my life. It's mine no matter what anybody says. I'm going to be Jackie. That's all I can be. That's all I know. It's what I feel from my heart and my soul. I was a phony person. If I'm not doing what makes me live the way I do, makes me think, makes me feel, makes me the person I am, there's no point in being me at all. I've got to be who I am. Most people are planted in someone else's soil, which means they're a carbon copy. I say to them, uproot yourself, get into your own soil. You may be surprised who you really are. So that's Jackie Aww. Shane. Uh, she passed away last year uh, in February. Um, but at least she got some big, big time recognition before she died. Kind of happy and healthy and you know nothing tragic there for her ending at least um and i'm glad her music's getting out there and it really rocks too like i definitely if you like 60s r&b motown type stuff it's really good oh yeah yeah. her pictures look super cool yeah she's she's stylish as hell very very badass you seen the ones with her in like a, a tuxedo type thing? Yeah, and like a kind of like bouffant kind of hairdo. I like yeah. the one where she's sitting on the couch, like giving a death stare. Totally. A she honestly like there's a lot of her look and her performance that I think is like Janelle Monae. Mm. I was about um, to say, just from that description, it sounds very mm-hmm. Janelle. That's awesome. Also, yeah, they're like, definitely kindred spirits for sure. I mean, winning a Grammy at seventy-eight, like that alone, is 
Yeah, I feel like only like big now. Yeah, I mean the Grammy Music. was in uh, best historical re-release of a recording, so oh. it wasn't that like sounds... she won album of the year or something. But yeah, yeah, that sounds like one of those ones that they make up. Not no offense to her, but it's like yeah. this is specifically for you. It's one Hopefully. of the five hundred categories of Grammy. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, she got to go to the ceremony and everything. So yeah, yeah that's awesome. I also, I looked it up because I didn't want to drag someone who doesn't need to be dragged. Uh, and Ed Sullivan was very, like, fussy and had a temper. And he, mm-hmm. like, like uh, who Bob Dylan, like, walked off the set. It was so bad. And Bo Diddley wanted to play his namesake song. And Sullivan was like, mm, can you play 16 Tons by... Tennessee Ernie Ford instead like from this other guy and <laughs> Bo Diddley played his song and then Sullivan was like you double crossed me in the <laughs> interview after <laughs> oh shit in front of everybody on, on TV yep. Woo! wow so okay I, I, so he's addicted. All right. yeah I feel a little bit better about saying he maybe was a little bit of a shit bag yeah that's uh, it's sad though that like so many things from that era, by today's standards, that level of shitbaggery is the mildest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's that would never that trend mild. on Twitter. Yeah, no. Dang. Sorry, I just went down a Jackie Shane hole of pictures because <laughs> they're all very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do, I, I will say I appreciate the mute function on this because while you were talking, I was able to mute myself while I had a fun sneezing attack. Um, I think Aww. Lisa saw me going. <laughs> I did. In the background. It's, so. all that, it's all that dust coming over. I mean, where where's it from? What desert? I can't. Sahara, Sahara. right? Yeah. Dang. I, I love stuff like that. It blows my mind that something can float over from the Sahara Desert and like fuck our shit up here in Texas. It's cool. So yeah, well yeah, just so far away and so much of it. So much. Karina, of don't it. explain my it. God, it's like this don't is explain our it to me. I'm just It'll gonna say that mind. all of this is just how how weather is, but yeah. I'm always amazed by weather. <laughs> Every time it rains, I get excited. Every time. Um, so yeah, this has nothing to do with rain or the Sahara, but it does have to do with people being assholes. Um, all right, so James Joseph Richardson, he uh, was a black man who was convicted in 1968 for murdering his seven children, um, which is a fuck ton of kids and just people that yeah. die in general. That's um, more than Andrea Yates. Yeah. So. I'm glad we on, have a scoreboard. Ugh, she's the, she's the one. Yikes. Um, so Richardson was a migrant farm worker from Arcadia, Florida, and he's living with his wife, Annie Mae Richardson, and their seven kids. Uh, 
on October 25th, 1967, um, some bad, bad shit happened. Uh, six of the kids, so the kids all go to school. Um, well, not all of them, but they have, okay, uh, I guess we'll start from the bottom because it's easier. A two-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a three-year-old. Um, so what happened was he and his wife went off to work. The mom had asked one of their next door neighbors, like, Hey, we have to go to work real early. Would you mind like helping just like we have, I guess they kind of like to keep the food away from the kids until they were supposed to have it, they would put it away. And she was like, if you'll just come over, give the kids their lunch and then like, let them go. And the lady's like, yeah, okay, whatever. So Annie Mae had made a lunch of beans, rice and grits for the kids. It's played in a placed in a locked refrigerator overnight. And in the morning, Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. Richardson leave to go work in the orange groves, which are 16 miles away from their house. Their neighbor, Bessie Reese, comes over to help take care of the kids while they're getting ready and going out to school. Um, so the four oldest kids go to school, but they come back home at lunchtime to eat. So they go off, they come back, and even that time that they're at school, they're like, the teachers are like, y'all seem kind of fucked up, like not acting great. They are showing weird symptoms. And the principal is like, wow, it's real weird that all four of you are acting this way. Uh, I'm going to take you to the hospital. Uh, and while the principal is taking these kids to the hospital, one of the other teachers at the school went home, went to their home to check on these three other kids, the little ones that were still there, finds that they're sick also. And she takes what? those. Yeah. So she takes what those symptoms were these. Uh, it Sorry. just says they were showing strange symptoms. I would guess that they just like felt sick. Okay. Like maybe puking, like obviously something was wrong enough to where the teachers weren't like, you're bullshitting. Um, aren't so. always the best describers of their sickness. Joe spent the yes. whole day wrapped up in a blanket, just like, I don't feel great. And I was like, okay, well, it's either COVID or nothing. And luckily it was <laughs> solved by watching Iron Man 2. She's fine now. So like, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, so they take... Now all seven kids are at the hospital and someone is like, we need to like get a hold of their parents. And they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone finally gets a hold of the parents, Mr. And Mrs. Richardson. And they're like, Hey, one of your kids is sick. They're at the hospital. If you could come here, that would be great. And they're like, Holy shit. One of our kids is sick. And they leave the orange grove and go straight to the hospital. And when they get there, they're not aware that six, in fact, all of their kids are sick and six of them are fucking dead already. What? Oh my God. Yup. 
So. Whoa. Yeah, they did. That, that's what happened. Um, the Jesus. So six of them were dead. The seventh kid, who was the three-year-old, died the next day. So all seven children end up dying. Um, Joseph H. Minahan, who is in the Arcadia Police Department, was the first officer to arrive at the hospital. Determining that all the sick children were from the same family, he was like, all right, let's go to the apartment because, like, what if this is, like, a COVID or something, you know, like, who knows why these kids all died. Like, they have no idea why they died. They just watched kids die. No no idea why they died yet, just that they were all sick and they all died really quickly. (sighs) Um, So they go to the apartment building to search for any poison and any like signs of a reason to quarantine their apartment and they don't find anything in the apartment at all they don't find any poison except for some like regular bug spray no like rat poison or something like that and they go back to the hospital um the police chief richard barnard And DeSoto County Sheriff Frank Klein are the next people to go examine the apartment. Minahan came back from the hospital for the second examination of the apartment and found them there. And Bernard and Klein went into the unlocked apartment, noticed a very strong smell, but again, no poison. So that's like three official people going in, never seeing any type of poison at the apartment. Um, Klein, who was the, mm, which one are you? Sorry, there's a bunch. DeSoto County Sheriff. Klein thought that maybe there was poison or pesticides outside in the shed behind that building, and they didn't find any poison there either. So, At this point, everybody in the world is picking up this case because fucking seven kids are dead and nobody can figure out why. Um, Richardson and the law enforcement officers were repeatedly questioned but didn't make any statements. A prosecuting attorney in the area responded to reporters and told them, yo, like no poison or anything was found anywhere in the house or outside of the house. Um, The next morning after the final child dies, um, somebody discovers a two pound sack of Paratheon, P-A-R-A-T-H-I-O-N, Paratheon, I don't know, which is a poison. Um, They discover this two bag, two pound bag outside of the shed or in the shed behind the apartment building. The shed they had already looked at. The shed they already looked at that they didn't find any poison in the first time. Um, Hmm. Klein and sorry, go ahead. They probably just sent their two dumbest don't know what poisons look like cops. And yeah, I don't see anything with the skull and crossbones on it. Mm, I don't know about that. Uh, so Klein, Barnard and their staffs and Schaub all agreed that the bag of 
Paratheon, I'm sorry, I'm so bad at saying that. I'll agree that the bag of Paratheon had not been there the day before when the premises had been searched five different times. Um, They thought that whoever had placed that sack of poison there was also probably the person who had poisoned the children. Um, There are conflicting reports on how the sack of poison like how law enforcement was tipped off to it. Minahan, that initial first cop on the scene, um, was told by Bessie Reese, the babysitter, that um, a guy named Charlie Smith, who also lived in that apartment complex, had discovered the bags of poison. That Um, sounds like a fake name. That is a fake name. Charles... Charlie Smith, I mean, yeah. I think it's a common name, but I don't know. Don't ask me, man. I'm just here. Um, <laughs> but Minahan ended up asking Barnard, who told them, and he said it was an anonymous tipster. So nobody knows exactly who was like, hey, the poison's there. Um <clears throat> Oh, anonymous tipsters. Is there yeah. nothing you can't do? No, because it's anonymous. It's funny because they're all named Charles Smith. Let's talk oh. about that. That's true. <laughs> um, the next day, Klein and Schaub's assistant, a guy named John Treadwell, told reporters that Mr. Richardson had discussed insurance policies for the children the night before all of their deaths. Um, the insurance salesman who talked to Richardson right before then was like, yeah, like I randomly happened to kind of go by there door to door life insurance salesman style. But, um, Char or Mr. Richardson never bought or took out any type of, stuff on his kids life insurance that's the kind of stuff um (laughs) so this klein guy uh he's like well we gotta do fucking something and this is my time to shine i'm gonna be like the sheriff that changes everything and (laughs) despite Barnard being like, you don't have a leg to stand on. There's not enough evidence of this. Klein is like, fuck it. I'm going to make an arrest. And two days after the funeral of the kids, Richardson is charged with seven counts of murder in the first degree of his own children. Uh, Is poison even first degree? Oh, okay. I don't know. Um... I guess. Isn't that premeditated? I don't know the difference. Should I? I should know the difference, but. I mean, you can accidentally poison somebody. Yeah. That's true. Can you accidentally poison seven people? I guess they're all eating the same thing. Exactly. Oops, I put put this arsenic in the lasagna. Oh, oh. No, I thought it was baking powder. Oh. Um. So Richardson gets arrested. Um, The mm, Treadwell 
who ends up, hold on, sorry. The police chief Barnard was like, there is no case against this guy. Um, Treadwell ends up being charged with prosecuting the case if it comes to trial. And he also agrees with Barnard that there's nothing there to proceed with. The murder warrants end up getting dropped, but then they come back and they're like, oh, no, no, actually, Mr. and Mrs. Richardson, you're charged with child neglect now. And he's like, what the fuck? So, um, just you can't have all seven of your kids die without something bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, so at a press conference the next day, Klein announced that Richardson had five other kids before and that all of them had died under mysterious circumstances. Wait, uh, what? Hold on. So he's 12 for 12? He's lying. This is Klein is lying. Um, but he's trying to obviously make Richardson look really bad. Um, so these other five kids in a Florida city and that the motive for that crime was to collect insurance money on the children, which would have totaled almost $14,000. So the judge in this is like, I fucking believe this Klein guy, uh, Judge Hayes says that Mr. and Mrs. Richardson both took lie detector tests and that they both exhibited knowledge of the poisoning. But most people know that lie detector tests are bullshit and coming from these people who have already determined innocence and guilt, uh, they're lying probably. In the coroner's jury that was held on November 2nd, 1967, Judge Hayes said, we will meet today to instruct Frank Klein to file murder charges against Richardson. The statement carried considerable weight in Arcadia, including the handpicked jury because of Hayes. So the judge came in and was like, these are the people that will be on the jury. And it was all fucking white people, of course. Um, he had been an Arcadian judge for more than 31 years. So he was just an old, angry white guy who probably hated black people. Um, so his defense is actually this guy who ends up being kind of good for him. His name is John Robinson. So Richardson and Robinson, Um, but he's like a kid. He's a 30 year old white lawyer. Um, he sees that judge Hayes is like super racist and is like, we need to go somewhere else and have this trial. There's already a bunch of people against you since the cops keep telling the the press that you're guilty and all this lying bullshit. Um, but the lawyer realizes like, this is probably way above my capabilities. And he contacts the NAACP in Florida and is like, these people are coming after Mr. Richardson and we would like your help. And the NCAA is like, all right, let's do this. So there it's the NAACP's people and John Robinson end up being his representation which you're like, yay, that sounds, that's promising, right? Right? 
Um, So Richardson is adamant that he did not kill his own children. He fucking loved them. Um, He said Sheriff Klein had been pushing him around, calling him the N-word and questioning him in super mean ways every single day. Klein told Richardson that he would be let off easy if he just confessed to the crime. Um, But Richardson was like, no, fuck you. I'm not confessing to murdering all seven of my children. (laughs) Um, What's the let off easy on uh, murdering seven children? I I don't know. Life sentences? Yeah, I would guess, yeah, just life in prison instead of the death penalty. So... Two prisoners who were in with Richardson while he's being held come and they're like, hey, what's up? We heard him saying to somebody else that he definitely did do this. And they're like, well, then that's totally it. Um, Case closed. Case closed. We believe you, two convicts. Yeah, nobody's ever pulled this move in an attempt to get a lenient sentence before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the trial begins May 1968. All the chosen jurors are white, despite all the challenges against that. And uh, so shit's already bad from the start. Yeah. Um, during the trial, the most sensational development was when Sheriff Klein claimed that there was evidence that at least three of his children had been killed in another county and a further three who had become killed or who had become ill but had not died. Um, Bessie Reese, Bessie, the babysitter, gave evidence (laughs) that she had divided up the meal into seven equal parts once the children came home from school at five minutes to 12 to eat lunch. Treadwell, who's conducting the examination of Reese, Bessie Reese, established that she was on parole at the time, but did not ask why she was on parole. Um, Treadwell didn't want the jury to find out that she was on parole because she murdered her fucking husband. What? You can get on parole for that? I guess so. The babysitter is—he was probably a piece of shit. Okay. I mean, yeah, you know, no, but, you, yeah. you know, but she was on parole for having murdered her own husband. Um, Jesus. No other questions about her involvement in the preparation of the food were asked. When asked about finding the sack of paraffin, Bessie became more specific and claimed that Charlie Smith wanted to look for the sack and went straight to the shed, pulling off the board off of a window and discovering the sack, implying that Charlie Smith had prior knowledge to the location of the paraffin. Um, An unknown woman also said that she saw them retrieving the sack and called the authorities. Um, even though Charlie Smith was in the courtroom at that time, he wasn't ever asked to testify. Uh, the insurance salesman is the next person that gets called to testify. 
and he's like, yeah, I did go to the house. Like I said, um, he was doing some door to door salesman stuff and he talked about family plans with Richardson, but he couldn't pay any of the premiums and the salesman was like, cool, I'll just come back in a week or whatever. Like nothing, no health insurance or health insurance, uh, life insurance was ever bought. Um, Treadwell kept insisting that Purvis or who is the door to door salesman had left with the impression that the policy was in place, but the salesman was like, no, it's fucking not. Why are y'all still doing this? So, <laughs> so the impression was there. So. Well, you know, so that totally means you did it, Richardson. Um, <clears throat> a pathologist and chemist concluded that the children had in fact died from the organic phosphate parathion which was found in their stomachs and on utensils in the Richardson's apartments. Uh, um, by the way, if you don't mind me interrupting, I did look up the uh, effects, like the physical effects of parathion poisoning, if we want to talk about it. What is it? It's insane. Okay. It's uh, headache, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, generalized muscle weakness and twitching, slurred speech, pinpoint pupils, excessive secretions, and shortness of breath. Ah. That just sounds like how I feel when I wake up. <laughs> pinpoint <laughs> pupils. You're just all iris. <laughs> I am always secreting something in the morning. <laughs> True, though. That's fucking terrible. That just sounds like the worst way to die and well, so painful. Well, and seeing, like, five kids in your school that are all doing that, like, that's horrific. That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, so that's how the kids died. Um, Barnard, Klein, and Minahan all testified that they had sh searched the shed and had not seen the bag of Perithian there on October 25th. And then they do pull up Charlie Smith, and he's like, yeah, I found it in the shed, just like Bessie said. Bessie the babysitter. And they're like, cool, sounds good to me. We believe you. Um, the jury retires to consider the evidence and half an hour later just fucking minutes of course they come back with a unanimous verdict of death with premeditation at the hands of james richardson and parties or parties unknown um the jurors recommend the death penalty for richardson and judge hayes and um oh Judge Hayes ended up having Charlie Smith arrested. Not that that really matters. Um, yeah, so he gets convicted of murdering all of his children and is sentenced to death. Uh, so he is in prison for, he's on death row for five years almost, and then he gets moved to life in prison because of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 1972 that determined death penalties in the U.S. were unconstitutional at that time. So... Wait, what? We had that for a while? I guess we had it for a while, but oh. clearly not. Texas didn't really 
Wow. Subscribe to that. Um, so yeah, his prison sentence is commuted to life in prison. Eligibility for parole in 1993. Um, so... I don't know if y'all could tell, but the case against him was very, very uh, shitty. And um, a guy named Mark Lane, an internationally known trial attorney and author, goes and visits Richardson. Um, Richardson asks Lane to like, hey, can you like represent me and try and like dig into this stuff? Because clearly I'm in jail and I can't go do it for myself. Um, he does. He does an exhaustive investigation. And in 1970, he publishes the findings in a book called Arcadia, in which he revealed that the babysitter, Bessie Reese, the convicted murderer. Um, yeah was a convicted murderer and why was she a convicted murderer and you know how we said she was on parole for killing her ex-husband guess fucking why she poisoned him to death uh. <gasps> um yep so bessie you know not looking so fresh anymore considering all of that um Little had been done to pursue her involvement with the children's death at all, including the facts that she had given them the food and that she had initially lied, saying that she had not gone into the apartment. In 1988, Reese, suffering from Alzheimer's disease, Bessie Reese, suffering from Alzheimer's disease in a nursing home in Arcadia, reportedly confessed to the murders of the children more than 100 different times to various people there. And everyone's oh like, God. Bessie, you have Alzheimer's. Like, you're just being crazy. Um, she died of Alzheimer's in 1992 and was the last surviving witness to Richardson's alleged jail cell confession. Um, so further investigation into the deaths had been inadequate. Leads were never pursued. All that terrible stuff. This guy named Remus, who had been dating the secretary of state attorney Frank Schaub's deputy, Red Treadwell, met Lane and his wife downtown or at a meeting called In the Silence Free James Richardson and took one of three copies of a complete original file on the case. Um, Lane meets with a governor's council and turns the entire file over to the governor, asking for a full investigation and a hearing on the Richardson case. The governor appoints the state attorney for Miami-Dade County, Janet Reno, to what? be the special prosecutor on the investigation. A number okay. of months. Yeah. Hero Janet Reno, right? Did she ever do anything terrible? Uh, I'm always, now I'm just so afraid all the time. Um, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, probably, but I don't know about it. Yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know either. Um, a number of months after. By today's and, attorney general standards? No, I feel confident in saying no. Yeah, okay. It's terrible. Good. Agree. I, 
1989, a hearing is held in Arcadia at the same courthouse where Richardson had been convicted more than 21 years earlier. Um, Lane appears on behalf of Richardson and Areno and on the state of Florida and argued, Lane argued and Reno agreed that grievous injustice had been done and the wrong person had, had been convicted of the crimes. Reno also cited that they withheld Brady material from the defense, six separate exculpatory elements of evidence. Mm. There was evidence of a cover-up by Frank Sheriff Klein, State Attorney Frank Schaub, and his deputy Treadwell, as well as that local piece of shit judge. After looking at all of the evidence posted by both sides, um, the circuit judge Clifton Kelly says that Richardson had not received a fair trial and they released him to the custody of his attorneys and the local council. Yay! 21 years later, wow. Richardson gets released. Um, he ends up working at a health resort for a while and like every a lot of people knew about the case um he ends up settling for a hundred and fifty thousand dollars for wrongful prosecution which Ew. bullshit could have done better yeah um they also wrote a compensation law that's supposed to give him fifty thousand dollars a year but I don't think he's ever, he ever like actually has gotten any of that money. Um, he's had a few heart attacks, but he has a good friend who is a like heart surgeon and he just keeps saving him. He's a cardiologist. So he's still alive and uh, he is in, he, well, his wife ended up divorcing him while he was in prison. You know, yeah. but they, he's they had a rough. Yeah, they had a <laughs> real fucking rough go of it. Yeah. Um, and I love the American healthcare system where, like, oh, he's still alive because he has a friend who's a cardiologist. That's, I mean, yeah. For real, though, like, that guy saved him more than one time of heart attacks. So, yeah, it's still a bummer, but at least he got released, I guess. That $150,000 really pisses me off. Yeah. Same. I mean. How long was he in there? 21 years? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that's not even like 10 grand a year. It's bullshit. Um, but, yeah. I think Bessie did it for sure. Yeah. Well, obviously. 100%. Yeah. Well, and she can just do it a billion times. Yeah. You just don't understand what the motive is. I have no idea. It's probably like some some munchies. She's got some munchies, yeah. it sounds like. That she just hates other people just in general or she got yeah. a taste for poisoning and Yeah. Just enjoy seven it. fucking kids. Oof. Um, anyway. Also, if there are any cardiologists listening to this, I would like to be your best friend. <laughs> yes um, that's really the whole reason we do this is so we can make friends with specialist doctors yes are do they still do lie detector tests i know they do on riverdale 
They, <laughs> I think they do, but it's not like submissible evidence in court. I yeah, think, I think it's they just do it to scare dumb people who don't yeah. know how to work. I think it's like a yeah, just a tactic to kind of gauge people, especially when it's like, well, they said they wouldn't do the lie detector tests, and it's yeah. like, well, if you listen to anything, you'd be like, no, I'm never doing a lie detector test ever because they're in they're not yeah. right all the time. Yeah. But, I wonder if anybody has done a lie detector test and they're like, yeah, I did it, but that's the lie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I did it like, and oh, I did you see my right. Yeah. Could be. You never know. Well, that's all I got. I was excited that Janet Reno came up. Yeah. I was, I was like, oh. random. First of all, that what a competent a, public official served in the state of Florida at any point for any reason. That's random. True. 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 My yeah. vision of Janet Reno is also like Will Ferrell playing her on SNL. Like that's who I see. Yeah, they did her dirty. That's they did. One of those things in retrospect. It's like, man, stuff we used to find funny. Yeah. God, there's so much of that. There's so much of that. Um, but yeah, I, I, Janet Reno was just such a household name. I think that's one positive thing that came out of the Will Ferrell thing was that she became like a household name and people kind of learned about her. Yeah. But they did do her real dirty. Yeah. Um, she just also has a cool name. That is, is a cool, cool name. name. I mean, yeah. she sounds like an attorney, like Janet Reno. She'll Janet Reno, up. attorney in law. There you go. Oh, who would? Yeah. Ooh, who would her bailiff be on her TV show? Will Ferrell. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say Horatio Sands. That's her. Uh, that's her penance. Uh, that's his penance. He'd be a great bailiff. Um, yeah. Well. Well, what did we, we, we learned, oh man, let's not talk about what we learned from this. Right. Yeah. Um, I did like the term sack of poison. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was. Sack of poison. I started saying that. Sack of poison. I started saying that because it's easier than saying her, if it, whatever it is. I was like, poison sack. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Poison sack. Beware the poison sack. That's what it is. That's what yeah. I learned. Um, I guess what we've learned is there's a bunch of uh, badass folks out there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they have had to endure a lot to be who they are. Yeah, just to be alive. Yeah. For fuck's sake. Alive. Jesus. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, follow us at Weird Brunch everywhere. Send us stuff. Pray for us as we all go out on our driving journeys as well. Pray for us because we're all very religious. Yeah, that's what we need. We need prayers. We need money. Prayers. Send us money. Send us prayer money. You know? 
not a and bad if idea. You're, if you're a medical specialist, add me on Facebook. I'll be your friend. I'll just say yes to that shit. That's true. <laughs>